2: Thank you very much, Frank. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. It's a new week, but the same old story. Another stock market sell-off. The Dow right now down almost 600 points, with concerns growing over a possible recession and a lot of concern about Europe in particular. We'll hear from someone who says the biggest risk to the markets right now is a Fed overreaction. Meanwhile, in a 4th of July tweet storm, Bill Ackman saying the Fed needs to kill off inflation to save the economy, and he's buying certain stocks. So, who's right? What does the Fed need to do? We'll ask David Servos, who's also feeling a little more bullish these days and the U.S. dollar hitting a 20-year high against the euro. What it means, who benefits, and how to trade it coming up. But let's begin with Dom Chu and today's latest market action.
3: So it's red, but one part of the market had turned green earlier in the day, and it's a very important one, Kelly. It is the technology component side of things, the Nasdaq trade in particular. So let's take you through the market narrative right now. The Dow Industrial is down about nearly 600 points, 577 right now, nearly 2% declines here. We've been kind of hovering around this decline level for most of The morning so far, the S&P 500 3768 is the trade down about 56 handles one and a half percent declines there. But that Nasdaq trade, let's focus there a little bit more. It's not necessarily that you want to accentuate the positive. It's more of a story about whether investors and traders are flying more towards buying dips whether it's to cover short bets or to just take long value positions in those technology trades. I will tell you, at the highs of the day, we were actually positive, up about 25 points in that Nasdaq trade. Meanwhile, just to give you an idea at the lows, we were down 216 points. So a very dramatic comeback when it comes specifically to that more technology, media, Nasdaq trade versus, say, the S&P or the Dow Industrials, where energy has a bigger part of that discussion. One reason why is that recessionary narrative that Kelly spoke about. Why is it coming a little bit more to the forefront today? Because a key part of the yield curve, the difference in rates between long term Treasury notes and shorter term Treasury bills and notes has now inverted, specifically the two-year versus 10-year spread. You can see they're now just about one basis point or one hundredth of a percent to the downside overall. The last time we saw that negative level, by the way, you got to go back to the beginning of April here. Some folks like to look at these key parts of the yield curve and say when they do go negative like this, it might foretell a recession. So that's one of the reasons why you're hearing more of that discussion come out. And because of that increased chatter about recessions happening, many of the outperforming stocks that you'll see in today's trade are some of the retail-oriented ones that are focused more on the value side of the income spectrum and the buying spectrum. Take a look at Dollar Tree and Dollar General, two of the more discount retailers out there. Actually, in the green, by about 3 quarters of a percent for Dollar General, 3.5% for Dollar Tree. Ross Stores, TGX, off-price companies up between 2 and 3%, and Walmart shares up about 3 quarters of 1% as well. So in a sea of red, Kelly, it's the kind of anti-recessionary play that's playing out pretty well for these discounters. I'll send things back over to you.
2: And the three-month tenure, uh, Dom, we'll talk about this next hour, below one point, or almost below one point I mean, now as well. I will well. say, you and I can have this
3: discussion <laughs> until the cows come home about whether or not the three-month or two-years, but anyway, we'll save that for power.
2: Line. They are both moving lower, for that's sure. Right. Uh, and I'll see you for that, Dom. Thanks. Speaking of moving lower, take a look at these stunning moves in energy today to the downside. Crude oil plunging 8 percent, almost 10 now. Brent down about that much. WTI crude is below $98 a barrel right now. It just fell through $100 today for the first time since late May. It's its lowest level since then. It's on pace for its worst day since March. Is this all about recession fears? Is there a supply story here? For more, let's welcome in Kevin Book. He's managing director at Clearview Energy Partners. Kevin, I I mean, astonishing, dramatic. What is going on with the price action today? What is it telling you?
4: Well, I think it may be getting a little ahead of the fundamental and and real world. But look, this is a world where you're saying it's 98 and it's low. Uh, We finished last year at an average of 70, 71. Uh, So we have to ask, what is normal? What is what is really going on? Uh, We're early still in the Russia sanctions clamped down on supply. Uh, We're seeing some demand responses in the Western world from high prices at the pump. But yes, also on store shelves and everywhere else. That's having a cumulative effect. And now all this talk of recession yeah, It's a 93% correlation between GDP and global oil demand. It's not too hard to figure out what the market's thinking.
2: So it has to be a GDP story. In other words, if we are able to move past this and feel a little more constructive on the economy, we snap right back, I guess. But this trade has demoralized the one part of the market that was working all year. And the only beneficiary from it should be, OK, fine, energy's resetting. It's lower, but everything else is benefiting. But no, it's just nothing's working except for the certain pockets Dom mentioned today.
4: Well, if we're looking at the liquid side of the oil and gas story, that's right. If we're looking at the European gas benchmark, it's a different story entirely. Look, we're talking about a serious shortage in the world. We're already hundreds of millions of barrels, two or three hundred million barrels below the five-year average of OECD inventory stocks. And now we're talking about crowding out 5% of the energy the world consumes, Russia's exports of oil, gas and coal with sanctions. They don't all hit the barrel, right? we're already looking at somewhere less, a little bit less than 1% of the world's energy consumption being forced off the market already or soon by sanctions. That tightness is going to come home to roost. So the question will be, what does the supply story look like? Does it disappoint to the downside? If so, I think we might start to see some more appreciation in crude prices.
2: Right. I mean, none of the fundamentals, I don't think, have changed over the past couple of weeks. Yes, the president is has this big Saudi meeting this trip next week. Could that be partly what's behind the price declines here, this anticipation that more crude is coming onto global markets?
4: Well, it's a big open question how that'll play out in OPEC+. Plus. But it goes back to the more real question of where the barrels come from. Uh, I think that right now, with the president saying he's not going to ask directly, uh, and with the crown prince probably looking for some sign of enduring long-term comradeship, if not outright friendship, uh, it may be too early to assume we're getting a surplus out of that meeting. But the kingdom can deliver. The rest of OPEC Plus cannot. And so the question, again, comes back to where the shortages show up in the market elsewhere. We just came back from Ecuador. We're moving into Norway. These are in the hundreds of thousands of barrels per day, but they're not nothing.
2: So I'm almost wondering if energy is going to end up being a self-correcting mechanism for the U.S. economy here, because if... You know, uh, our friend Patrick Tahan of GasBuddy is tweeting that with oil below $100, gasoline prices could fall almost 50 cents a gallon in the next couple of weeks. That would be a huge boon to the consumer at exactly the point that they need it. I wonder if it could literally help uh, improve attitudes and spending enough to change the trajectory of the recession that so many people are worried about and help avoid that outcome.
4: It would be a big thing for it to do that, because if you look at the share of uh, the gasoline occupies in spending, we're usually in the 4 to 6% range writ large. Uh, and uh, right now, we're looking at gasoline as a share of disposable personal income. Uh, we're talking about 3.35% trajectory for July right now, coming off of 3.41% in June. Uh, these numbers may not seem very high, but they're very high relative to where things were a year ago, year and a half ago, and also disposable personal income itself on a real basis, falling because of inflation. So I'm not sure how much relief we're really going to see from 50 percent, 50 cent downtick at the pump, given the broader picture of the consumer, not to be Not to be a pessimist.
2: All right, fine. Have it that way. Uh, Kevin, thank you very much. Uh, We appreciate (laughs) it. We'll check back in soon. Kevin Book with Clearview Energy Partners. Stocks today are recouping some of their losses, with the Nasdaq briefly managing to go positive, but the Dow is still down 588. My next guest says the largest market risk is the Fed overreacting to inflation by raising rates too fast. She's warning investors to keep staying away from creatures developed in a backdrop of near zero rates like cryptocurrencies, SPACs, and high IPE growth stocks, even though some of those are outperforming today. So where does she look for value? Let's bring in Margie Patel. She's senior portfolio manager at Allspring Global Investments. Good to have you back, Margie. Do you want to just kind of pick up the thread where we left off there? I mean, what do you think is happening with the macro backdrop?
5: Well, I think what's happening is the Fed is talking very aggressively And in the face of uh, raising rates, yet we're actually seeing signs that inflation may be softening by a number of early indicators. We're also clearly seeing economic growth here and globally slow down. So that, that isn't the backdrop to see stubbornly very high inflation continue. So I think the risk really is the Fed does what they've done before, which is focus on inflation, slam on the brakes, raise rates substantially and really hurt the economy to bring down inflation uh, and not really being very sensitive to changes that are occurring right now. The market has anticipated the Fed. They've been ahead of the Fed. So market rates actually have declined about 70 basis points in the last few weeks over concerns of recession. So I'd say the biggest risk is the Fed not looking at the real world, uh, trying to stamp out inflation and really hurting the real economy, causing the uh, recession. Yeah,
2: no, I, I understand that point of view, even though the high inflation, the persistent inflation view doesn't look a whole lot better, does it? I mean, we don't want a, a situation where you repeat the mistakes of the 60s and 70s and, and, and almost into the 80s, where it always felt like, you know what, OK, the macro is more important. And then you have 15 years of stubbornly high inflation that takes, you know, a real tightening to
5: stop. Mm-hmm. Well, that's right, but this is different. And really, a lot of what caused the inflation was precipitated, were the huge deficits. One brought on to soften the impact of COVID, and secondly, to stimulate the economy, the American Recovery Act. So altogether, there were several trillion dollars pumped into the economy in very short order. Not surprisingly, we had a huge jump in inflation. A huge jump. And economic growth. And we're seeing those roll over. So this would really be the, the wrong time for the Fed to look in the rearview mirror, react to those and aggressively look to raise rates. All right. Let's move on to where you what
2: parts of the market you like. I mean, do you think you this is a good time overall for investors to dive into an S&P 500 if they have pulled money out or been nervous about, you know, having that cash on the sidelines And what stocks or what sectors in particular do you like here?
5: Well, I think so at a macro level, although it's likely that we'll see the economy slow down. That's true. We'll have to see earnings, but looking for earnings to taper lower, I would say that we're still going to have positive economic growth, and particularly the sectors that have secular qualities, they should be able to grow faster in the economy, I think, look attractive. You've actually had uh, price-earnings ratios come down about a third from, say, over 20 to maybe, say, 15, 16 times earnings. So that cushions a lot of uh, earnings disappointments. So we continue to like those sectors that we think will have long-term growth. The healthcare sector, we like the industrial sector. We think we'll see capital expenditures. We like the defense sector. We have for a long time. Uh, We think also parts of technology will continue to do very well because it's still a sector that grows above the market.
2: All right, Margie, thanks again for your time and your thoughts today. We appreciate it. Thanks. Margie Patel. Still ahead, my next guest says what the Fed is doing is working. But could any of the big econ reports we get this week derail that sentiment? That is next. Plus, the dollar up double digits this year. The euro trading at a 20-year low against the greenback. We'll look at the sectors and the names most heavily exposed and how to trade them. As we head to break, let's look at markets one more time. The Nasdaq still fighting into the green by just a couple of points right now. The S&P down 50. That's a 1.3 percent drop. The Dow down 1%. 1.7% small caps under pressure, and the 10-year yield, below 280. We're back after this.
1: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
2: Welcome back, everybody. Stocks selling off again today, but the Dow is down 742 at the low. We are only down 526. Nasdaq's positive. Anyway, what happens with all of this? The destruction we're seeing in oil, what's happening in commodities, bond yields? What happens if we get a bad jobs report on Friday? Steve Leisman joins us now with what to watch out for. Steve?
1: Hey, Kelly, yeah, the debate over recession or just slower growth its going to get hotter this week. Got a series of reports that are going to shed light on the current state of the economy on the road ahead. It all ends with that Friday big jobs report. We have ISM services where we see if we get that switch over into weakness in manufacturing becoming strength in in, uh, uh, in services. Jolts will tell us how tight the job market is, Fed minutes tomorrow, jobless claims, and then the jobs report on Friday where the Dow Jones uh, survey of economists looks for a fairly steep downward uh, step there with a consensus for just 250000 for June. That's about half the average for the first half of the year, but the number would still be strong for normal times. Pricing in the Fed f- Fund's futures market has come down dramatically. Just a few weeks ago, market was looking for a peak Fed rate of 408 coming in July 2023. Today, it's priced at 327 for February. So, Almost 80 basis points less tightening now built into the market. And then the Fed is seen quickly retreating and cutting rates by 70 basis points. That's at the end there, that December 2023 number. That could be a sign the market is pricing in that recession. But if the service sector and the job market are strong this week, you may have to rethink the recession call yet again at least immediately kelly maybe further down the road
2: especially because the most important thing to the fed these inflation expectations on the market side are breaking and on the consumer side with gasoline might be about to be broken
1: if that happens that could be a game changer and maybe the market has this right and instead of uh the 70 basis points back up maybe we don't even get it um you know, I think the end of this year is pretty much a done deal. The Fed is going to 25 to 3%. What happens after that is going to be entirely contingent upon what happens with the economy.
2: All right, Steve, thank you. Steve Leisman. Now, our last guest argued that the Fed might tighten too much into a slowing economy, but Bill Ackman holds a very different view. In a series of tweets yesterday, the hedge fund manager argued the economy is fundamentally strong even though it's slowing and says the current volatility in the markets is due in part to leverage short fixed income trades, a lack of liquidity and a misunderstanding about what a recession actually is. And he's long, Ackman is long, high quality growth businesses with pricing power and says those stocks look cheap. Does he have it right? Let's bring in David Zervos. is the chief market strategist at Jeffries. Dave, it's great to check in with you. Are you feeling uh, a little more optimistic these days on the market?
7: I am, Kelly. I, um, you know, I came on, uh, I looked back, it was uh, right on Fed Day, mid-July, and the market's kind of right around here. And Sarah was asking me a little bit about uh, my feelings, and I think I surprised her by saying, you know, I'm I'm kind of turning a little bit more positive or at least a little bit less negative. We started the year very cautious, Tried to advise our clients to be quite cautious, and I think that uh, you know, folks who have kind of at least covered a little bit of this and not been completely um, c- completely wiped out by the by the 20% move in the S and P and 30% of the Nasdaq, I think have have a reason to sort of say, hey, this is a this is a lot. This is maybe enough, maybe not, but it's getting closer to enough. Uh, especially if you think the Fed, as Steve said, kind of gets to two and a half, three, which I think is right. That's done deal. And then next year we rely more on QT and the power of QT. And that may be enough or more than enough to really get these inflation expectations uh much lower and maybe to the point where the Fed gets a little nervous that they've driven them too much lower.
2: Right. So I think maybe the place to say that you and Ackman would break with the rest of the market today is on the fact that everyone else seems to think slowing economy is going to send us right into recession, see what that does to energy trades and all the rest of it. And the two of you and others like Michael Darda have said that perhaps this actually is a constructive moment for uh, risk. What how are we going to know (laughs) whether to be long risk here or whether that, you know, next leg lower is coming?
7: Well, I I think, you know, I I read through Bill's comments and he he was sort of singing a little bit from the same hymn book that I've been singing it with our clients, which is that, you know, nominal growth, nominal GDP has been quite strong and is probably likely to stay strong for a while. And and that's a that's a a lot of income. Nominal GDP represents both income and expenditures from your Econ 101 class. And uh, that income flows into the economy. So when you have 12 percent nominal GDP growth like you had last year and we're setting up for you know, reasonably high possibly 7 8 or 9% nominal gdp growth this year a lot of it being inflation and not a lot of it being real uh, but it's just it's just a lot of you know a lot of fire under the economy's belt to drive nominal asset prices higher and to sort of keep it feeling a little bit better even when the real economy doesn't feel that good
2: yeah so what would you do as an investor right now
7: so look i think it depends on how you came into this year as i as i opened my if you came in cautious if you came in sort of, you know, underweight, I think now's the time where you think about, this is the time where you say, okay, you know, I have an opportunity and I can get involved uh, a little bit more. Um, I think if you came in overweight, you've got a problem and, you know, you just, you're going to have to sort of saddle up and sort of, you know, hope you don't get redeemed, really, I guess would be the the reality of it. But the most important thing I think is that if you have the firepower, this is not an unreasonable time to get involved. And that's, you know, that's coming from a guy who spent most of this year handing out, you know, brokenhearted quantitative tightening hats to exactly. his client, um, which I think I wore once on your show. And, <laughs> and I, I, I'm still handing them out, and I think QT is going to break some hearts, but it might have already broken enough hearts, Kelly. And and uh, and we may be getting to the point where uh, you, you have some some silver linings coming through. No, be, that, so.
2: That's why I take your change in sort of positivity to be quite revealing, because it's not like you've been saying all along it's going to be fine. You've been saying there's really no good place for risk right now until As I'm hearing it kind of the last couple of weeks, let me ask about an even more controversial thing, which is not so much whether you should be long equities uh, right now. But what about fixed income? What would you do with bonds?
7: Well, look, I mean, I think today two tens inverted. Um, The five year, five year break evens are down to the lowest point they've been at in a year, which, again, is probably a signal to the Fed that their credibility is more than intact and, and probably way more than intact, which is a big difference from where they were at the last Fed meeting when they saw that University of Michigan print on long-run inflation expectations. So I think that the yield curve, to me, is kind of saying uh, something pretty profound, which is maybe um, as we go to this balance sheet runoff and as we see, you know, $95 billion a month come off this, this balance sheet, that quantitative tightening could be very powerful. And it may mean that rates don't have to go up as much. And that could be, you know, somewhat positive for, uh, somewhat positive for the uh, equity markets. But again, I think for the fixed-income markets, it just puts a new sort of equilibrium level for Fed funds and kind of pins down the long end a little bit better. And I think we may be seeing that uh, start to come into this, uh, the factoring of, of where long end yields are, not to mention that inflation expectations are coming down. And that's why we're getting, I think, more of this move in the 10 year than anything else. So I, I, I'm, not, I'm not jumping onto the uh, I know a bunch of uh, fixed income guys, you know, Jeff, uh, Jeff Goodlock and a few others have been very excited about bonds and they've had a great call um, in, the, in the last few weeks uh, or months. Or so as they've done it. But I'm not so excited about the bond market. Um, I think it, it's okay, but I, I'm you know, I'm leaving my old blues from the spoos and blues world aside right. for now. I'm just thinking that it's time for it's time to think more about how beaten up risk has been and um and, and think a little bit more cleanly on that. And I'm not over excited about it. I think the more we go up, the more the Fed will use it as an opportunity to kind of get ahead of inflation. So I don't think there's a runaway for us, but I just don't think. The big downside trade that a lot of other strategists out there are pushing makes a lot of sense unless the Fed loses the anchor on long-term inflation expectations. And that was that was always a big risk. Right. It doesn't look like that's happening. I'll tell you what, oil today's gotta be telling you a different story.
2: Bingo. No, it reminds me more of your spoos and Jays trade. Maybe Jay's back in the picture
7: (laughs) as your hedge.
2: David, Mm -hmm. thanks for your time today. We appreciate it.
7: Always a pleasure, Kelly.
2: David Zervos with Jeffreys. Coming up, it's been a rough year for the restaurant industry. Starbucks and Domino's down around 30 percent. Wingstop down 52 percent. Inflation, one of the big headwinds. But there is one company better able to manage it. We'll tell you which one and what's ahead for the group. As we head to break, let's check back on the markets. Only five Dow stocks are in the green right now, with Nike seeing the biggest gains. Uh, The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. The Nasdaq is positive by 50 points or half a percent right now, if you can believe it. The Dow, meanwhile, down 484, so we're 300 points off the lows. Energy is still getting crushed, though. Oil is trading down almost 10% today. It was not only below $100 a barrel for WTI earlier. It was a moment ago below 98. Uh, this is some of the worst intraday drops we've seen since March. Brent, even worse, down more than 10% uh, for now hugging that $101 a barrel mark. Exxon and Chevron are down four percent and they are the best performers in the energy group today halliburton ConocoPhillips, phillips down more like eight percent materials are also sharply lower so this is not just an oil story of course these stocks are also economically sensitive freeport mcmoran more of a copper play there it's down seven and a half percent as copper itself is falling to its lowest level in about a year and a half Gold and silver under pressure today as well. A bright spot are actually the travel stocks. Travel and cruise lines are leading the way in helping the consumer discretionary sector turn higher. We've got Norwegian and Carnival up 4 to 8%. Caesars up 8%. Even American Airlines is in the blue. And we'll have more on this in just a moment. Some of the online and e-commerce names also doing well. Roblox, which is up like 50% in the past several trading sessions. It's up 13% today. Etsy, Bumble, and Chewy all posting nice gains as well. Now to Christina parts of Nevelis for a CNBC news update. Christina.
8: Thank you, Kelly. Police in Highland Park, Illinois, say they may be ready to file charges later today against the 21-year-old man now in custody in connection with the 4th, July 4th parade shooting that killed six people. At a news conference about an hour ago, they said the person of interest used a high-powered rifle similar to an AR-15 to shoot more than 70 rounds into the crowd from the roof of a commercial building and that he was dressed in women's clothing.
9: Investigators do believe he did this to conceal his facial tattoos and his identity and help him during the escape uh, with the other people who were fleeing the
1: chaos.
8: Switching gears, as he was leaving a White House ceremony today, President Biden was asked if he plans to go to Highland Park. His response? I'm not sure. Biden has ordered flags to be flown at half-staff in honor of the victims. And in just the last few minutes, two key members of British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's government have resigned. The UK Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Health Minister are quitting, unhappy with how Johnson handled earlier sexual misconduct complaints against a top Conservative Party leader who Johnson later appointed to his post and who was forced to resign recently after being intoxicated in public. Johnson has apologized for making that appointment.
2: Kelly, lots of news in the UK. Back you. Indeed, Christina, thank you. Still ahead, speaking of which, the euro hitting a 20-year low against the dollar. We look at the sectors and the names with the biggest exposure to the strong U.S. dollar that has all global currencies under pressure and those with the biggest exposure and how to trade them next. Welcome back, everybody. With the dollar hitting its highest level against the euro in 20 years, it's nearing parity. We're looking at sectors that are most exposed and how to trade them. Let's begin with a key beneficiary of the dollar strength, the travel sector. All those tourism dollars stretching a lot further. Seema Modi is here with the story on all of these angles for us today and the standouts. And Payne Capital Management's Courtney Garcia joins us with her picks as we move through each one. Welcome to you both. Seema, let's start with travel. What can you tell us?
10: Well, Kelly, the weaker euro is widely seen as a net positive for travel. It gives Americans purchasing power, incentivizes them to travel overseas. In fact, data from Hopper shows Trips to Europe have increased by 9% over the last month. In terms of beneficiaries, uh, Truist analyst Patrick Scholl says Marriott high on the list with 15% of earnings generated in Europe. Within online travel, booking holdings with its Priceline brand, which is heavily geared to the European audience. And then within cruise lines, it's Carnival, uh, high exposure to Europe. The challenge there is the broader effect of the Ukraine war on Europe. The cruise lines have yet to bring back all their ships to the broader region. And that stock bouncing today, but has been under a bit of selling pressure over the last week after Morgan Stanley came out with that note. Analyst Jamie Rollo really laying out an extreme barricade scenario.
2: All right. So those are some of the biggest beneficiaries potentially. And again, we are seeing some positive trades today. Courtney, where would you guide investors in this space?
11: Yeah, those you mentioned, actually, I think booking can be really interesting here. Um, travel in general, I think we're really seeing that demand is not slowing down, even with inflation picking up. And what's happening with the dollar and the euro is only going to stand to benefit. What I really like about booking is they actually do get a lot of their revenue from Europe, where they have a really good stake in that um, in that market. And I don't think that's going away in the near future. But also, they're starting to get more into the Chinese market, which just long term is a great beneficiary with the demographic they have and the population they have. But short term, Is they're starting to open up from their COVID restrictions, that increased demand that they're going to see only stands to happen exactly what happened in the U.S. And so Booking will be a great beneficiary of that. All right. Booking gets
2: the vote of confidence. Let's move along to some of the names that could take a hit, like the multinational consumer Staples plays with big overseas exposure. Seema, who is most exposed here?
10: Well, that's exactly right kelly it's the global consumer brands that have diversified their footprint they've made investing overseas a big priority so names like philip morris mondelez uh both with a significant exposure in europe rbc capital analyst nick modi says both of these names could potentially be hit by a weaker euro another name that came up in the discussion is ebay um, in the consumer discretionary space with about 30 percent of sales accounted for in Europe. That's uh, according to Goldman Sachs, which put together, David Coston over there, put together this really great analysis of the revenue breakdown per geography and eBay, as he points out in his note, uh, with 30 percent of sales in Europe. That is higher than I would have expected. Philip Morris with 50 percent. Right.
2: Courtney, where would you have people stay away from, or are there any ways to kind of invest in the, on the long side here?
11: Yeah, I think specifically and when you're mentioning these names, eBay, I would definitely proceed with a little bit of caution here because um, one other thing that's happening right now, which we've talked a little bit about, is inflation's kicking in. The consumer is spending their shift from goods to services, but not even just goods to services. eBay is really in that space where it's you're looking at collectibles and kind of um, unique items, where that's going to be the first place that people are not spending from as we have inflation and a slowing down economy. So I would proceed with some caution there for sure.
2: Okay, so more of a sort of stay away play. Let's finally wrap it up with the tech sector where, Seema, we have some surprisingly high exposure here for a lot of big cap tech, right?
10: That's right, Kelly. Uh, technology is the most vulnerable sector, as Goldman Sachs notes, of any sector, really. It derives the highest share of revenue from international markets at 59%. So then the question is, within tech, where exactly? Uh, which sectors are most vulnerable? Digging through the note, it's it's the semiconductor names on semiconductor, TE Connectivity, And then, again, other technology companies with that global footprint, consulting firm Accenture with considerable exposure to Europe. So this is certainly a sector that gets affected as the dollar continues to rise. It makes their products less competitive when doing business overseas, Kelly. Yeah,
2: about 33 percent exposure, as you just showed there. Um, Courtney, what do you do here? Because obviously we also have the semi-cycle to worry about. And like you said, inflation and the expense story. Um, What are your thoughts?
11: Yeah, I think with tech, you definitely, you mentioned that's going to be one of your most susceptible, susceptible. so you really need to make sure that you are looking at companies that have a really strong balance sheet here. Um, what I do like about Accenture is they have a really good free cash flow. They have a customer base that is pretty sticky, right? I mean, even in a, a slowing economy, you're not going to get people who are just pulling their business quite as fast as some of their competitors. Um, so I think if you're looking at space, that actually might be one that, that would hold up a little bit better here, even in a slowing environment. And
2: Courtney, just to broaden this out and kind of ask the, the elephant in the room question, what if the dollar doesn't keep rallying? I say that knowing that our friend Carter Worth thinks this strong dollar trend will persist. He we had a great call on uh, bearish energy. So if he's long, the dollar, I certainly take notice. But are investors putting too many eggs into one basket if they make any trades uh, about currency, which is notoriously difficult to predict?
11: Yeah. And and that's your point. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. So any of these picks we're talking about, you want to be looking at um, adding a portion of your portfolio. But we're seeing this year there's so many headwinds, whether it's inflation, it's a slowing economy, it's the war in Ukraine, it's supply chain issues. I mean, any one of these things could persist or maybe end in the near future. So you want to make sure you are staying very broadly diversified. So don't be putting all your money in tech. Don't be taking on, out all your money from tech. You need to make sure you're sticking mm-hmm. with your plan here.
2: Seema, anything you'd add to that, especially on a day where we're seeing the reversal of so many inflation trades and strong dollar was for or maybe still is one of them?
10: Well, the other way to look at this uh, this dislocation we're seeing the currency market, Kelly. Is also just looking at what it means for European companies. Does it make the does the weaker euro make them more competitive? Yeah. In the past, we have seen a correlation with a weaker euro being good for European companies that export overseas. So we'll have to see if that trend uh, plays. To market here.
2: That's true. It's like you can then just hop overseas to take advantage of there. But then, as long as you hedge your currency, it gets complicated fast, you know? Uh, We'll leave it there, ladies. Thank you very much, Arsima Modi and Courtney Garcia. Coming up, more than right. More than 8 million people, she said, uh, passed through TSA checkpoints over the long holiday weekend. And with airlines facing serious staffing issues, thousands of flights canceled or delayed. We'll break down the numbers and whether companies can turn things around for the rest of the summer. We're back after this. Welcome back, everybody. The airlines perking up a bit as uh, the oil and gas. Uh, jet fuel prices collapse as we move throughout the session here. Uh, still, they're not as strong as the rest of the travel space, on the heels of a rough holiday weekend as thousands of flights were canceled. Phil Lebeau is out at Chicago's O'Hare Airport with the very latest on this story. Phil?
9: Kelly, it was a rough weekend, especially if you were traveling on Friday or Saturday. The airlines did a little better on Sunday and then yesterday. Here are the numbers according to FlightAware. Not the best numbers. 1,810 flights were canceled. Over the four day weekend, 2% of the scheduled flights, the delays topping 21,000. Basically, one out of every five flights was delayed at least 15 minutes, according to FlightAware. So you might want to look at this and say, okay, that's another holiday weekend where the airlines struggled. How have they done? But basically the last six weeks, Memorial Day, 2.8% of the flights were canceled. June 10th, they really struggled, 3.5%. And there you see the numbers for the 4th of July. Some individual stocks we want to touch on. First of all, American Airlines. This got a lot of attention on Friday and Saturday after the pilot union said, look, about 12,000 of our flights disappeared from the internal schedule. Didn't have a, a captain or a first officer. That was strictly for the internal Pilot scheduling. It was not that those flights didn't have pilots. That did not affect operations. The airline says everything has been fixed as far as the software glitch there. And then as you take a look at the major airlines, we're talking about Delta, Southwest, and United, remember that they have all trimmed their schedules this summer. So because of that, and a lot of those schedule reductions kicked in July 1st, that adds a little more slack into the system. And then finally, don't forget about Spirit. This continues, and this week will be a big one. You've got the the new vote for shareholders coming on Friday. That will be on whether or not to go forward or reject the proposed merger between Spirit and Frontier. And, of course, JetBlue says it's still a player in the possible a chance to merge with Spirit Airlines. Kelly, back to you.
2: How much of a break would lower jet fuel prices be for them? Because it seems like if that were the only issue for these stocks, it would be a pretty simple story, but managing the schedules, dealing with labor shortages feel like much more chronic problems.
9: Well, jet fuel would certainly help. Look, it's the second biggest uh, expense after labor, uh, and you're seeing it at unprecedented levels right now. Are they able to offset some of that with higher ticket prices? Yes, but they can't eat up all of it as it has moved higher and higher. That certainly is going to be weighing on their results when we hear the Q2 numbers coming over the next couple of weeks.
2: All right, Phil, for now, thank you, Phil LeBeau, for us today. We'll have much more on the Airlines and Power Lunch when Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg joins us next hour. You definitely don't want to miss it. Still ahead, biotech ETF, the IBB, slightly higher today, but down more than 20% since January. We'll get a stealth mid-cap play that could be an outperformer after this. Welcome back. Healthcare has been a somewhat bright spot this year. The U.S. healthcare ETF, the IYH, is down only about 11%. Different story for biotech, though, which has plunged more than 20% year-to-date. And my next guest warns it could stay in the doldrums until the Fed has done hiking rates, although he does see a few opportunities already cropping up. Joining us is Les Funtleiter, healthcare portfolio manager at E-Squared Asset Management. Les, let's just set the scene. How hated is biotech right now?
12: I would say uh, really hated, actually. (laughs) Uh, It's down a lot. It's been thrown out with the bathwater, like a lot of other risk risk assets like crypto and some of the tech names. And probably, in our view, going to stay that way for a while.
2: Well, I don't know. The way that the market's trading today, it seems to think a, P- a Fed pivot is at hand.
12: It's possible. I wouldn't rule out, by the way, I wouldn't rule out a summer rally just because they often happen. And the, the market is, at least in particularly small cap biotech, is very bearish. So you could get some funds quite offside. But on a long uh, on a longer term horizon, our baseline assumption is probably sometime May of 2023. The Fed stops, although who knows, maybe they'll stop tomorrow and that'd be great.
2: So are the fundamentals broken or is this just a tough trade because of liquidity and, and dynamics with growth stocks?
12: It's a it's a tough trade because uh, their their main input cost for biotech is capital and in the cost of capital goes up obviously your input cost goes up and your valuations go down you know it's more or less math and we've seen this cycle before so you know we we'll we'll hang in there and wait.
2: What does it take to get back? You know, I remember the glory days. It was kind of the mid to late teens when, you know, you had names like Vertex and different things were the best NASDAQ stocks of the year. And some of the mutual funds were returning, you know, just what we've seen Art K do during the early stages of of the pandemic. What does it take to get back to those days?
12: Uh, Another bubble uh, or 0% interest rates. (laughs) I would say we're going to hit a a steady state, maybe not prior heights, which is Kind of why we're kind of uh, sniffing around the mid-caps as opposed to sort of the growthy, you know, high beta biotechs.
2: So all of that said, where would you look and, and direct investors' attention if they want to look at some under-the-radar but potentially promising plays? Well,
12: a couple of claims. So health equity we own uh, to play on higher interest rates. They do well when rates go up. They're doing well. Uh, Alexandria real estate is a way a real estate play in biotech because they uh underlie a lot of the biotech labs and companies, so that's a good one. Um, Cytec Bioscience, they uh, have the latest and greatest flow cytometry, which I know sounds boring, but it's actually very cool, and uh, a company called Signify, which is in the small-cap growth name, small-cap, mid-cap name, but it's a, a, another, it's a play on the service sector. And, of course, our stalwarts are always you know, J&J and United Health and Boston Scientific, which do well come higher, you know, or high water.
2: Yeah, hell or high water. Would right. you- well, I'm not
12: sure if I was allowed to say that.
2: Okay. <laughs> well, I'll take the fall for you. How's that? What Thank do you, you make of a uh, larger cap, sort of more traditional healthcare space? And can you explain how COVID is still affecting the trading dynamics there if it is?
12: Sure. Well, it's, it's less COVID and more interest rates and a flight to quality. So big pharma, we, we own a bunch of those too. Are going to do well because of uh, the dividends and stability and in earnings. They could be hurt if we have a very radical drug pricing, uh, you know, bill passed, but that doesn't seem like it's on the horizon. So with those, it's sort of steady as she goes, and you'll see investors gravitate towards them as a as a place to hide out until things get a little bit better. That's our view, and we, we well, like I said, we own uh, you know a big swath of uh, major pharma.
2: I'm getting asked more about monkeypox and, you know, any healthcare players that might be working on some kind of vaccine or treatment or could benefit from it. I don't know if you've done uh, if there's any digging to be done there yet.
12: Uh, they're, they're around. Um, you know, monkeypox is the latest thing to scare us. I would I would mention that I've been writing about this for well over a decade. We, we're, this is monkeypox will not be the last zoonotic disease we have Uh but I guess if there's any upside to COVID is that we've sort of done a lot of work in the antiviral space, so we're a lot smarter. Uh, I'm not nearly as worried about monkeypox as I was about COVID. So uh, I, I hope I'm right, you know, that uh, it'll sort of burn itself out. Uh, but you know, if, if the next time I'm on, I'm wearing a hazmat suit, we'll know I was wrong and
2: right, unfortunately, so no, no place there maybe to mention, let me ask you about one thing a little closer to home, which I have heard, uh, occasionally talk about there being development of maybe an RSV vaccine or something that could be combined with uh, flu and, uh, COVID maybe a, a Moderna thing approach or something like that. I don't know if there's anything more you could tell us about that.
12: Yeah, uh, yeah, we are seeing that, uh, uh, and we're also seeing it on the diagnostic side too. There's a private company called Visby. It's working on a combination test flu vaccine RSV. So yes, we will. I'm I'm pretty confident we will see a combination vaccine. It'll just make life easier for everybody. And I'm not sure if it'll be in time for this flu season, but it'll definitely be in time for uh, you know
2: 2024. Where? What, let me ask you. you, 14, put, it, you put your doctor hat on. Where? Do, what is RSV, and where did it come from? This wasn't a thing when I was younger. And now, in the last couple of weeks and months, and I can tell you, everyone in my neighborhood, in my town, at work, their kids are all—they're in and out of the hospital with this thing.
12: Uh, well, to be fair, I'm not a doctor, and, <laughs> and nor should you take any <laughs> medical advice from But R- R- RSV has been around for ages. Um, I think we're just more aware of it now. Uh, I mean, RSV has been a been an issue forever. Uh, again, I think it's just an awareness. We are more aware of vaccines and viruses and all kinds of things that go bump in the night. And so, and it's a good thing that we we are aware of it, that we can treat it. And RSV in general is, seems fairly treatable if you catch it.
2: Right, absolutely. All right, Dr. Funtleider, thanks for your time today. Good to see you. You can be the you know, the portfolio doctor anyway, uh, Les Funtleider, with his plays on healthcare and biotech. Coming up, it's been a rough year for restaurants as costs climb and consumers scale back spending, but this name could be better positioned than its peers to deal with the fallout from inflation. We'll tell you the name and why next. Welcome back, everybody. Before we go, one more thing. Over the past three months, Wingstop, Domino's and Starbucks have all had new CEOs take over. And while all three execs are facing labor shortages and rising costs, only one is showing signs of being able to fight inflation. Kate Rogers is here now with that story. Kate?
0: Hey, Kelly, all three of these leaders taking over during another shift in the industry, still working through the pandemic, but now also staring down inflation and a p- possible recession here. At Starbucks, Howard Schultz returned to a very different company than the one he left several years ago. The two big challenges it's facing are a potential consumer pullback. It's one that Schultz recently warned about at the Dealbook Conference and the ongoing union fight it stares down. More than 180 stores have voted yes on organizing across the country. Last quarter, U.S. demand, though, it did help to offset a pullback that the company's in China which is also an ongoing concern. Now at Domino's there's also still strong demand in the US as of last quarter, but Russell Weiner is taking over for Rich Allison who's noted in past quarters that a driver shortage was kind of limiting the company's ability to meet some demand. Domino's is analyzing its driver staffing and leaning into carryout in the meantime. On the inflation front, it has implemented some modest price hikes. But so far Wingstop and its new CEO Michael Skipworth seems to be the only company we've heard from talking about meaningful deep- inflation in wing prices. He told CNBC the company hasn't begun discounting yet, but it does have some levers to pull with pricing and can offer value bundles at a really key time for customers. If you take a look at all three stocks, though, telling a very different story, Wingstop down over 25%, whereas Domino's and Starbucks are holding up a bit better. Kelly, back
2: over to you. Domino's especially. And speaking of, I guess, pizza chains, we just got some (laughs) news out of Russia, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. This is uh, with regard to Yum! Brands. It's kind of continuing to move out of the Russian market. It says it's completed its Pizza Hut transfer to a local operator there, and it's going to be rebranding to a non-Yum! concept. And it's also doing the same with its KFC restaurants, transferring them to a local operator. If you remember, Yum! like others had suspended operations of all of its company-owned restaurants and halted all investments and restaurant development efforts and kind of redirected those profits from Russia operations to humanitarian efforts. So once all of this is done, Yum brand says it intends to fully exit from Russia. So another major company following in the steps of McDonald's and Starbucks doing the same. You wonder who's left at this point. Any major chains? No, those were really the big three that were there. Uh, McDonald's was the one that kind of faced the most pressure because so many of those were company operated there, not franchise. But uh, those are the big three names, Kelly. All right, Kate, thank you very much. Kate Rogers with all the
2: latest news. And we will be sticking with other names that have had a rough year next hour. The trade in cars, chips and copper coming up on Power lunch, which begins right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same
10: time, same place.
6: People today can spend half their lives over 50, so it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation.